Hello and welcome to another exciting special edition of the Scottish Liberty podcast with me, Anthony Samaroff, and my co-host, Tom Laird. Today we have a very special guest, Katrina Knappman, and she's doing a show at the Fringe this year called Out on the World. Uh, hi Katrina and welcome to the show. Hi Anthony, nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you. Um, so we met at um, a preview or something like that a few mm-hmm. months ago and you were telling me a little bit about your show and I heard some of your poetry as well mm-hmm. and I was really fascinated about your story of you know what you've done. So why don't you introduce our audience to yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and your history and how you came to be making that into a show. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my show, as you said, I'll give you a little, little snippet of it. The show's called Out in the World. Um, and it's a journey through three countries where I've lived and worked as a human rights worker. Um, so we visit uh, Nicaragua, Egypt and Burma. So they're all places I lived and worked. I've actually lived in eight countries over the past 10 years. So often in this job, you work a lot of contracts. So you end up moving around a lot. Um, so the show tries to show a little bit the other side of what's happening in the news. So not just the stories of angry men waving placards or, you know, um, stories of sort of politics and everything like that. So that, that's part of it, but also trying to look at sort of everyday stories of little snippets of everyday life of, of those countries as well. So it's often what you see when you live in a work in a place and it's not what you see in the media or when you go and just visit as a tourist. So trying to capture a bit more of those sort of everyday stories. Oh, really wonderful. And what mediums do you use? Is it poetry and storytelling or are there other elements to Yeah, it? I've also got sort of a photo collection as well. So it's sort of like trying to show a little snapshot. So often um, each each poem often comes with a photo and mm. then so a little snapshot through a photo and then through, through a poem and then a little story. So it sort of interacts between those three um, elements. And I've also got some music from each of the countries to, to use as transitions between each, each, okay, um, cool. each part of the each part of the set yeah so how did you get into being a human rights worker yeah it's a long story of rebellion against <laughs> rebellion against becoming a lawyer <laughs> great <laughs> yeah. no um i i studied law um and french at edinburgh uni actually um and i was really interested in sort of the human side of law i was interested in things like criminal law and family law and human rights aspects but i didn't really have any clue how to work in human rights so I began to sort of start doing volunteer work and that sort of thing. Um, and then I did volunteer work even up until I'd been working for a few years. I was doing it in the evenings and, and beside my main job. So I think a lot of volunteering was how it began. And then I got an opportunity. I worked, my first job was with the European Court in, in Luxembourg right. um, as a stagiaire. And then they took me on in a, on a short-term contract as well. And, and alongside that, I was volunteering at Amnesty in Luxembourg. Um, and then the Luxembourg government took me on and a traineeship program that they had for young people. So that's what took me to Nicaragua. So I worked for two years for the Luxembourg government in Nicaragua. Yeah, and then from then I've sort of managed to pick up different contracts. I went back to do a master's um, and then began working more focusedly on, on land right issues. And right. for the past four or five years I've been working on land rights with a lot of f- also focus on women's rights and gender right. rights as well. Okay. And, and women's mm-hmm. rights to land. Yeah, women's rights to land is my particular focus I've been working on for the past few years. Yeah. And is there an imbalance in many countries that you've visited in terms of what rights people have to land according to their gender? Yes, yeah, I would say absolutely. Yeah. Um where I work where I work most on this is in, in Myanmar or Burma. Um and there um I mean, access to land is very much defined by your gender. And that's also the case. I've done a lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa as well. And that's also the case there. Okay. Yeah. Is that codified in these countries? Is that codified in law or is it traditional? I, I mean, and is, is there anything, for example, if I'm an elder of a tribe or I'm just a, a, a patriarch of a family, is there anything in law that would prevent me from passing on my uh, land to a, a, my female issue or is it just a traditional thing? So there's like a sort of gap, but there's sort of two levels of it. So there's the statutory law or the national law okay. and then there's customary systems and customary practice. And very often, um, in most of Sub-Saharan Africa in the statutory law 
Um, there's provisions for gender equality in decision making around land, sometimes for land specifically, but sometimes right. for decision making more more broadly within the country. Um, but then at the customary level, the customary practice level, it's that men are the ones who look after land and, and that's where the discrimination is more likely to happen. Okay. Um, in Burma, it's quite similar. Um, there's in Burma, in Burma, there's not been a whole lot of legislation on land because the country's been under military control for so long. Um, a lot of the legis- there's, there's a lot of legislation on land, but often it dates back from the colonial period. Right. Or they're more like laws relating to land confiscations. Right. Um, so um, a lot of recent laws have been created, but they don't really have a lot of gender equality provisions in them. The most recent... Um, piece of law on Burma is called the National Land Use Policy, so it's an umbrella policy which covers land in the country. It does have gender equality provisions in it, but it's not really, it was only um, properly, when was it published? I think in March this year. Okay. So it's, it's quite new and it's not really been properly implemented and it was published by the, it was created by the previous government, so the transition government. Um, in Burma, and then of course, um, Aung San Suu Kyi's party was elected in November last yeah. year. So it's unclear whether her party is going to take that piece of law over and use it, or whether they're going to create their own policy. So right. something is a lot of transition happening in, in Myanmar right now. So it's quite it's quite unclear right. whether what's exactly going to happen there. But there again, it's um, women often don't have access to their land, um, or women. I'll give you a better example. When when law there's been a 2012 statute in Myanmar which allows um, farmers to register um, user rights on their land. Okay. The government in Myanmar still owns all the land in the country, but farmers for the first time since 2012 can have user rights, right. which allows them to do things like mortgage their land and sell it and get um, okay. get get yeah. credit for their land. But they can't actually own land per se. No, there's not an ownership right. It's a user right. right. So this is the first time something like this has existed um, in the country so that's a new provision that's happened it only exists on farmland there's there's lots of different categories of land in Myanmar so it only exists for land categorized as farmland it's quite it's quite complicated but largely um, men have been registered as the owners under this statute Um, so that means women um, Although traditionally they were they use the land and they they're they're farming that land, they're not getting the piece of paper with their name on it necessarily right. for that piece of land because the man is considered the head of the household right. according to tradition and tradition. practice. Yeah. So what um, little I know about uh, land rights the world over is that you find problems in countries where there aren't land rights because people are less likely to invest in the land and develop the land if it can be taken away in any time by the government or the military or some corporation lobbies. Like, I know that, say, charities have a very difficult time, environmental charities, just going and buying up the rainforest. Because even if they buy the rainforest, those property rights will not necessarily be respected by the government who can then give logging rights to that Mm -hmm. land to a logging company. So it's a lack of private property rights, a lack of land rights. Um, and what what would you say is going wrong in land rights in the countries that you've worked with and what would help improve that situation? I know that's like a huge question. <laughs> it's a question. There's yeah. also your, um, I don't know, the, the position that you, you come at that from is a okay. sort of privatisation position, which mm. wouldn't necessarily be the one that you... Be, well, I, I'm sort of... I'm not sure exactly where I stand on that, but I think a lot right. of organisations in, for example, Myanmar wouldn't agree with that right. position. They would have a much, they would see land as primarily being something that was cultural and a social right. um, yes. entity before mm-hmm. it was a private entity. Okay. So, so mm-hmm. I do you mean the NGOs themselves see it that way? Well, I suppose like especially local NGOs. I wouldn't right. necessarily say international NGOs. I think often, I mean, NGOs ultimately are coming at things often with their own political or own politics, not right. necessarily in party politics, but in terms of where they. Yeah. Stand on, on the political spectrum. So I think it depends often what your vision is, what how you see Saksia, something like that. So, it's an important question, though. It's yes. a really big part of what and land rights stand for. Yeah. I think when I say uh, private property, I might mean something slightly different from what <laughs> you might think. Maybe, yeah. Which might just be just that anyone can, like, as you say, um, um, own own their own land 
uh, individuals. I don't mean privatization in terms of necessarily going to corporations or, mm-hmm. or, or what, what we understand in this country, at least by privatization, is usually the government will sell some um, assets that were previously held by the government to a company and then forbid any other companies from competing with mm-hmm. that company. It's something like what we saw in the energy industry when that was privatized. It was handed over to a few companies and they kind of put a wall around it to make it very difficult for anyone else to create energy. Simply what I mean by sort of private property rights is the same way that I might be able to buy this flat from my landlord. or, mm-hmm. or um, And from our political point of view, we believe in something called homesteading, which is if you mix your labor with the land if you're the farmer and you cultivate that land mm-hmm. in a way well that's how you 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 ought to be able to claim ownership for that land because you mixed the labor mm-hmm. from the land when we had in this country things like the highland clearances and things like that that were conducted by aristocrats against probably the farmers who'd properly homesteaded the land and should have traditionally um, be, been entitled to land rights. Mm. Uh, do you think that's more congruent with your point of view, or do you take um, do you take a different position on that? I think that that position is largely how a lot of Myanmar um, farmers would see right, the situation. Right. I mean, I think from them, largely, I know that Myanmar was under military control for right. a very long time. But actually, in in terms of what the farmers themselves could do, they weren't necessarily restricted in terms right. of how they could use land. And these new land laws that have come in 2012 have much more restricted their ability to access land because they have to have this farm and it, it's become more controlled in a way, right. which is right. sort of the inverse of what you would think yeah, would sure. be happening, which is quite interesting. Do you think that's, uh, do you think these new controls are, are positive in some way or do you think they are, they are creating problems? No, I think they do have a, I mean, I think any change comes with fallout mm. for both sides. Um, I think there is value to, um, you, you know, when I say cadastral maps, you know, mm-hmm. like the like the land registry in Scotland. Yes. Um, in Myanmar, the cadastral maps date from 1940, around 1936, right. 1940. So there haven't really been any proper planning and surveys done of the land in Myanmar and who owns it since really the British were in control of the country. So I think in terms of starting to map out ownership and that sort of thing and understanding who owns what and how land is being used okay. I think it's helpful in trying to understand who it starts to get a grasp of who's using what and how and what that's being used for so then you can get a proper picture of what's being used in the country what resources are being used who's planting what that sort of thing which I mm. think is at the moment is not fully being captured because of um, because of the way the land was being managed previously so I think in that sense it's positive um, I guess I have mixed feelings about individual ownership rights. Right, okay. I think in some senses they're positive. They give people the opportunity to choose how they use their land and, and whether they want to buy it or sell like sell it or buy more land and all, all the rest of all that sort of accompanying rights that come with it. Yeah. I think that's positive. It allows farmers to um, gain credit on their land. If I mean, at the moment, that isn't very working very well in Myanmar, but if that right. was possible, I think that would be a positive thing. Um, but I think it, it does also create a culture, a very individualistic culture, right. and that's not what culturally is sort of in the surrounding ambient in Myanmar. It's much more communal society, sure. and that's the way the mindset's set up. So I well, think that's, yeah, something to consider Would as well. they, I mean... Um, I know from my only experience, well, not my only experience, but experience in sort of African societies and tribal societies mm. where, I mean, we here in the West, to a certain degree, value individualism, whereas in a tribal society, it's kind of, it's, they're suspicious of that because it's not congruent with tribal mm. living. You know, we're all the one tribe, and in order to survive as a tribe, we can't allow... Actually, individuality is a bit dangerous in that context. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you say maybe in Myanmar they have the same sort of concept of that, or is it slightly different? It's a little bit different. I don't think there's really... I think you can't say the word tribe to apply to Myanmar, okay. like, but right. I think maybe ethnic... There's es- there's the strong group, ethnic groups, okay. and then I think there's there's villages and, and village practices, and I think in order to work together with other people in your village, you have to have a, a communal okay. mindset in order to be able to you know resolve disputes amicably and all that sort of thing, and work out um, how you how you operate together and I think there's more of a sense of of that that sort of feeling um, so I, I think often I don't know I'm, I'm a little bit wary of any I would also be very wary of a sort of large 
sort of massively applied system which encouraged cust- like sort of customary practice or communal practice as well. I think often from, things from a central planning. Yeah, I'm sort of. I think a lot of these things, do, a lot of large scale planning like that, doesn't always consider the individual cases and how people how people interact with that. So yeah. I think they, they, they often both have the tendency to cause problems on the yeah. ground. I mean, two good examples of that would probably mm-hmm. be China with a great leap forward and maybe the sort of um, Pol Pot in Cambodia mm-hmm. where they tried to centrally plan mm-hmm. uh, an agrarian economy and it just yeah. was a complete disaster. Yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I, I heard a stat like in the Soviet Union there was about 5 or 6% of land that was actually allowed to be um, privately owned, I don't know if that's the word you'd use for it in a communist system, but that land actually produced 25% of the agricultural produce, mm-hmm. So, uh, which is amazing, but also it makes me think, wow, you said and here's a country here that has no privately owned, again, I don't know if that's the word you'd like to use, but no land that isn't owned by the government, and I don't know what the implications of that are for the development um, of that country and maybe you can elucidate mm-hmm. yeah I mean what's the staple diet for a start I mean what, what are they farming what mainly mm, so the, it depends on the part of the country there's okay. actually quite a large range of crops so sort of going from orchard type crops like betel you know betel nut like the mm. like the stimulant they use in Pakistan mm. you know the red nut that they chew that's yeah big, okay they use that in Myanmar a lot so that, that's a big product and cashew sort of also in trees um, but then they grow a lot of fruits and vegetables as well in certain parts of the country, like chilies, watermelons, um, pomelo, if you know. That yeah, is. yeah. It's like a big grapefruit. Um, and then also a lot of rice. Rice is, I mean, rice would be the number yeah. one. And then um, a lot of beans in certain parts of the country. And um, and are they grown commercially? Is it full scale or is it just gen- generally small? I mean, there are quite, there tend to be small plots. But okay. um, off they are grown for cat, like they're largely grown as cash crops. They're not really grown as subsistence. Right. Crop. I mean, some some would be used for subsistence, but a lot of people sell their products then. Yeah. But usually, they sell them onto local brokers at a local market, or they sell them on a sort of smaller scale locally, and then maybe it gets used nationally more than anything. I don't think a large amount of it's sold for export. Yeah. Um. So it's sort of. I think also because it's not a country that's had a lot of international dealing up until now so right it's been pretty much closed off yeah and i work on a rubber project as well in one in one area so it's also smallholder rubber farming um how did rubber get i mean that's not is it it's no, not that native. Was centrally planned yeah, yeah. they decided because rubber i think about 10 years ago or so rubber was doing really well in the international right. market so well the government so. decided to in- okay. implement rubber plant rubber plantations in certain parts of the country and um, but now of course rubber price is a lot lower right. so it takes about right. seven years for rubber to mature so before you actually right. get the benefit from the crop then you oh, offset right. the prices it's, it's a bit changed. of a tricky it's crop it's quite uh-huh. a risk it's mm-hmm. quite a it's risk a and, uh-huh. and to kind of like put your um yeah, to, to invest in that kind of seven year mm-hmm. year plan that's quite that's quite risky and it kind of reminds me of uh, what Keynes, uh, the economist, believed about like private investment, where um, oh the the market's too unpredictable for private investment because if you're going to build the steel mill that's going to going to be served, you can't predict twenty thirty years in the future, mm-hmm. so the government's going to have to invest in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the government in this case didn't invest uh, in a seven year plan for rubber. Um, also, uh, obviously, Venezuela has been heavily dependent on oil, mm-hmm. and now that oil prices have um, plummeted, it's been a real humanitarian disaster over there, which is is uh, really sad. Yeah, but I don't. But I digress. You know. No, but I think it's important. Like, it's it's important to understand. I think how much sort of small farmers like that yeah. invest in a one product because right. they think the market is doing well yeah. and then if the market price drops due to for example for example I used to work in Nicaragua and there the coffee farming when the coffee markets crashed um, right. there was a huge oh, impact right. for the small holding farmers especially sort of ones who didn't have land who were yes. laborers on farms right. they, they were severely hit by crashes in the international market and it was to do with schemes in other countries like say in Africa to grow more coffee right. so the market there was more supply in the markets in Nicaraguan right. coffee the demand for Nicaraguan coffee went down yeah. and then that has an impact on, on families actually do you know that like individual yeah, yeah, small holding farmers because they're the ones who are, who are trading in that and that they usually only have one commodity like that they're trading in and that that makes them very vulnerable to yes. to changes in the markets yeah 
Can I just ask you, can I go back to the show just for a second? Um, you've been doing the show how long now? Um, that's been, that's, this will be my sixth day today. Yeah. Okay, and mm-hmm. what's the audience reaction? First of all, what's the demographic? Is it just, is it random or is there any particular demographic to the audience? I think it's quite, there's, I've had quite a range of people in. I've had sort of old people, young people, sort of everyone in between. Um, yeah, okay. so I'd say I've had quite a good range of, of different people. And what's the reaction been so far? I've had really positive feedback actually from people Good. who have come to see it um, I've had sort of one, one girl told me she made me cry, her cry I think in a nice way and other people were just been really interested in finding out things about I suppose aspects of these countries that you don't always hear about mm. or sort of um, in the Egyptian part of the show for example I talk a bit about how I found the Egyptians so engaging and so funny when mm. I live with them. And when okay. you see them on the news, they're always waving placards and looking very angry. Um, and yeah. I think it's just sort of, I think people kind of enjoy hearing those stories. Um, yes. And hearing some, just sort of hearing the, the poems that, um, that I use are often quite visual. So there's a lot of different images from okay. those countries as well. So I try and give a sort of flavour of... Of the play of place and time and all. And all those Do you think things. the lousy weather is helping the audience uh, figures at all? <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't know if it's helping actually because people okay. are not necessarily wanting to come out. But I did that was my that was my pitch yesterday when I was flaring. Get out <laughs> of the rain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So would you like to share one of your poems? Yeah, with please us do. Now? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm not sure where I should share from. What would be a good theme? I'm just something to rethink. Anything you like. Um, so we've got Nicaragua, Egypt and Burma. Um, we'll go for a Burmese one. Maybe. Burmese one, yeah. So, okay, I'll do the first one. That, oh, no, maybe I'll do... I'm trying to think. They've got one that's about Myanmar when I first arrived there. Um, and that's... Um, it talks a bit about the, the changes in the country, a little bit of the unrest at that time. Um, and I've got another one about changing Yangon, which is more about like Yangon physically changing with the. It sounds like yeah. it seemed like yeah, Yangon with up. the Yangon. They <laughs> <laughs> set up when you mentioned that one. The so changing Yangon. Yeah, okay. yeah, you looked at it. We'll do that one then. Yeah. So maybe I'll give you a little bit of a background to it beforehand. Sure. Um, so. And Myanmar in the news, as you know, is, is the pl- politics is changing in Myanmar at the moment. But the sort of most physical evidence you see of that is in the city of Yangon and in a few other sort of more developed parts of the country, where you see um, new shopping malls appearing all of a sudden. Um, you also see a lot of new international restaurants. For example, I think there's now three or two, two or three KFCs. In right. Myanmar, didn't you see any of those? Right. Okay. There's no Starbucks or McDonald's yet. Um, there's, I think, there's five or six Mexican restaurants wow. now in, in Mexican Myanmar. restaurants in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's also, I think, two bars with mixologists, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So Myanmar has got its own mixologists, but there's still only about five or six ambulances to service this city of five oh. million people. So you often see the changes in these sort of very commercial type. Yeah. Um, All right, happening yeah. on the sort of high street. Yeah, exactly. But the, the changes are not necessarily happening in terms of the, the really sort of fundamental infrastructure that, right. that's needed. Right. Um, if only there was some way of getting the same commercial acumen into the, the, yeah. the ambulances yeah. and the, the infrastructure. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think we've heard that, you know, in, in Africa, in some places, you have big highways going towards wherever the, the natural resources are and yeah. plastic surgeries. For rich people, but no more basic infrastructure. For yeah, well, the, the Chinese in Africa, for example, built enough. Well, the, the British did the same thing. We built enough roads and railways to get the copper out. You know, and that's really, that's <laughs> really what. Everything else has, yeah, to, yeah. has yeah. to wait. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this next poem was about the about about a little bit about that, but also about the, the government's response to the sort of huge influx and increase of traffic in the right. city. Okay. Um, has been to build some flyovers. Um, and these flyovers take about a year to construct to make the traffic much worse <laughs> in the process of construction. Right. But when they're finished, I actually really love these flyovers because you kind of you get lifted from the you know the sort of down being Hardly down at the street so, level yeah. all the time to suddenly going upwards, and you start seeing different parts of the city that you wouldn't have seen before. Okay. So that was what inspired inspired the volume. Yeah. Super. Will I do it to you or to the camera or both? Please do it to the audience. audience. We'll listen intently. Okay, great. (laughs) They tell us development is a straight line of progress, horizontal and determined towards better days. Really, the changes have been in the vertical axis. 
profits and losses, bridges and shopping malls, health records and mobile phone users, the new peaks of Yangon. There used to be only two-storey buildings, then a rush of eight-floor condominiums, a regulation that a building with nine floors must contain an elevator. Then the new rise of shopping malls, the latest is 23 storeys, constructed slowly. Each year we crane our necks to mark its progress. And the six new flyovers, which take us from the straight line of our journey to course suddenly upwards. The taxi speeding past curtains, pot plants, a few curtains, a few shirts on a hanger, out to dry, a glimpse of gold, Schwedegon, then descending to street level, traffic jams, stoplights, the bare feet of monks. Lovely. Excellent. Thoroughly enjoyed that one. <laughs> so, um, I, we've heard quite a lot of about Myanmar because that's where mm-hmm. we are just now. Perhaps um, you could tell us each a little bit of your experiences in Egypt and Nicaragua mm-hmm. and maybe along the way we'll hear a couple more of your poems. Yeah, that sounds fine. Um, so where, where will we start? We go to Nicaragua. Nicaragua's a good Let's one, yeah. travel to Nicaragua, yeah. Um, yeah, in Nicaragua, I, I lived in a small town um, called Esteli, which is in the northern mountains of the country. Um, and I worked with coffee farmers um, in the five northern departments. So I spent a lot of time on very bumpy buses <laughs> and sometimes on horseback getting to visit the farmers. Um, and the, the idea of the project there, it was with the Luxembourg government I was working um, and we worked to try and diversify those farmers' income who had been so reliant on coffee. The idea was okay. to diversify the income largely through developing a concept called rural community tourism, right. um, which is about bringing tourists to communities so that they can... Right offer um offer sort of basic accommodation services tour guide mm. services and um, see local attractions okay. and also have the experience i suppose of visiting mm. and living with a farmer and and sure. start getting to see sort of daily things like milking cows and making tortillas and that okay. sort of thing yeah what was, what was luxembourg's interest in all this um, Luxembourg has uh, Luxembourg is actually one of the countries that gives the biggest amount of its sort of you know percentage of its of its um, GDP to um, development. All right. Yeah, it gives it gives right. about one percent, or it was giving one percent when I worked there. It might it might be given. I'm not entirely sure the figures now. That was All about right. almost ten years ago. One percent. So is that quite? Yeah. Is that high then? Yeah, because the UK. Well, I'm not sure what the UK gives now. I think it gives about zero point six or zero point seven, or that was uh, that right. was the case a, a while ago when I was working in Luxembourg. I knew all these figures because Luxembourg. Is, is obviously very proud of the fact it gives such a high yeah. percentage of its um, um, quite rightly so it gives a high percentage of its GDP to development okay. and often it focuses on other smallish countries like itself right, okay. um, and then also on francophone countries so it works yeah. in a lot of francophone Africa um, and then it also works in El Salvador and Nicaragua okay. so they're sort of target countries what for the, what's, what's Luxembourg's GDP what, where did, where did they go? what do they do no, I've never actually eaten Luxem- it I don't think so Luxembourg what? makes a lot of money from banking and, ah, right. yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's also got a lot of EU investment. that's what they're doing they're solving their country yeah, okay. yeah they've got um, Luxembourg used to be an agricultural economy like yeah. it was largely sort of farming quite rural until mm. like the late nine, I think the late 80s and then yeah. it started having quite favourable regulations for investment, and now it's got yeah. a huge, a huge number of banks are in Luxembourg, okay. banks and banks and law firms, and the EU institutions. Right, so it's yeah. putting its uh, money in the collection plate at church on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually. I mean, they're, they're really strategic, very smart country in the way that they right. operate. I think. Okay. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. is it true that the way that aid is given now is much more smart than in the past because I heard there were some bad incidents of people trying to put food in third world economies creating gluts in the market and mm-hmm. and um, lo- putting local farmers out of business and things like that has there been a change in the way that aid's given and, and operates around the world? I think the, de- the world of development is always going to be um, a complex one because mm. there's so many different players at different levels. So you sort of start with your local NGOs very much mm. at grassroots level working with communities. Then you have INGOs or national NGOs, sort of national NGOs, then international NGOs operating in country, then international NGOs in their head offices in yeah. London. Mm. And then you've got people like national donors, then donors like the EU, 
EU and sort of large international donors, the UN and, and then the World Bank and people like this. So there's a lot of many different players, all with different agendas. Right. So mm. it's always extremely complex the way that aid aid is, is provided and the way it's given. And I mean, there's a lot of arguments now that at the moment aid is far too donor driven because right. it often, um, because the money comes through the donors, then their agenda drives the way that a lot of things happen right. on the ground. A lot of people are, don't don't agree with that. It makes it sometimes a lot more difficult for small local NGOs to really act appropriately and, and get the funding. Right. And they, they're the ones, are they the ones that have the facts and the grounds and know how to help people better? Or, well, yeah, they're or the ones where, who are connected the to communities. Well, the knowledge is at different levels and it depends on what, what knowledge you have. And often the best projects have a sort of combination of those players working together well yeah. in a sort of team-based type, you know, team-based type of um, arrangement. Because often you need someone who understands the donor system right. to get to get the funding channel towards your work and then you need someone maybe who understands the national system well to, to make sure it coordinates well and it's not overlapping with other projects and then you need someone who understands good connections to a community and, and long-term investment in that community in order to be able to really um, work, work well together with them, yeah. And what do you think about the direct giving charities that have actually become quite popular on the internet there where they just... The charity will just go to people in the poorest places of the world and just give them money. Oh, I haven't heard of those. What, have you got an example of one of those? Um, I, know, <laughs> I know that there's... I, I'm very sorry to say I don't have a specific example, but I heard that there's websites that basically rate charitable giving according oh, yeah, to how well, how, how much... What percentage of that money actually goes to helping people as opposed to administration and that the direct giving charities were doing really well on these on these rating websites mm-hmm. and that um, and that they've become quite popular so um wow well, i'm just you you're so i find this conversation so eligible um educational <laughs> educational Freudian slip there <laughs> <laughs> you always have a great laugh. You are you? very eligible. I know, I know, I know. That's what the fans say. So. No, I just found it so educational, and um, yeah, maybe maybe you'll be able to look into that and get back to us and and see if if you've got any from your you know well informed opinion. If if you've got any feedback on that, if you do get to look into, I it. have heard of these cha- these are these websites that rate mm. um, that rates. I suppose I think they rate how much money goes towards actual mm-hmm. projects and how much goes yeah. towards staff costs and mm-hmm. admin costs right. and that yeah. kind of thing. Because yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult though. I think charities do have. I mean, they they are under a lot of pressure. A lot of charitable sure. organisations to raise funds to keep the to keep the system going. Yeah. So they do need to put a percentage of their income of into fundraising. And yeah. um, I think the danger is when you have ones. I think around Darfur there were quite mm. a lot of NGOs that were basically just publicity machines right. you know that were just they were raising money to raise awareness about yeah. Darfur so they were having all these posters of you know poor looking children from Darfur up on walls yeah. and people had to give money and then that money was going towards creating more yeah. posters yeah. and you know that sort of That's thing not is not very helpful. Yeah. We, we want to mm-hmm. see people's quotes, standards of livings improve. Exactly yeah. I mean how do you feel about the, the I've heard it said that in a lot of these countries whether it be Africa whether it be Asia a lot of the local population say and and other commentators have said, look, people don't need aid; they need trade. They mm-hmm. need to be able to trade their goods to the Western world. You know, that's what that's what would improve their their, their standard of living, no end, rather than aid. Is there any truth in that? Is it, how how do you see that? I mean, when we, now that we're out, we've done the Brexit thing. I mean, one of the things with being part of Europe is we couldn't actually trade with these people properly because there's so many embargoes yeah. and tariffs. Uh, whereas now, I think we have a perfect opportunity to to trade with these people properly, buy their goods, buy their coffee directly, and you know, and improve their standard of living. But I don't know how. You, I mean, you you were on the ground, so I, mean, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think ultimately, like my job, I'm, I think my job, I'm only useful in my job if I understand that I'm trying to make myself out of business. If right. that makes sense, yeah, yeah, you know? totally. like, yeah. Yeah. I'm, if I keep yeah. trying to self-perpetuate my yes. presence in these places or yeah. keep yeah. trying to self-perpetuate my the idea that I'm important in this equation, then I think yes. I, I'm, I'm not doing my job properly. Yes, I, you I'm know? a therapist, so yeah. I very much understand. <laughs> my, my, if, I, if I do my job well, I'm making myself redundant, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, so you have to, I think you do have to have that mindset of 
of like I don't I'm not need to be here for not don't need to be here forever and how can I help people in these countries to be really making the best contribution that they can make um but it, at the same time everything that you deal with in development you, you tend to work on a sort of project basis mm. and you can focus in on that project but then of course when you look at that project in the broader context you're caught up in all these things to do mm. with when you look at gender it's always to do with traditions culture you know law all these sort of very hard embedded issues mm. that are not going to be solved overnight okay. yeah. and then when you look at things like coffee farming and other things like that you're embedded in the whole world of global trade yeah. um, and that's again is something that can't be solved e- easily or quickly mm. um, but I do think ultimately like the world of aid is helpful to an extent but I think real change I think I also seen this in my own life. Change only really happens when you take mm. control yourself right. of yeah. what, what your circumstances and what you need, what needs to be done f- to make your life better. Yeah. And then I think aid can aid is at its best when it's supporting someone to achieve that. Yeah. Do you know when they are already yeah. feeling empowered and feeling able to make a change? Um, so I don't, I don't see, I don't, I don't like. I think often the way that aid is sold in our in Scotland or in, in the yeah. West in general is this idea of oh we're going in to save these people. I don't think that idea is helpful no. at all and no. I don't think it creates a good environment. Have you heard of the kind of one laptop per child kind of <laughs> thing? No, it's <laughs> weird. I don't know where that came from but I've sure I'd heard Dominic Frisbee talking about it before. Yeah. There was a, a scheme that they had in Africa where they decided okay we're going to give each child a laptop computer and it was astoundingly successful really? without any training with anything these kids worked out how to use the laptops and the kids who worked out how to use the laptops showed the other kids how to work the laptops and they were going online they were teaching themselves things and it was like an incredible self-learning process wow. that just burgeoned wow. through just giving laptops yeah. to kids mm-hmm. um, so I mean that, that's I, I suppose a, 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 an example of aid that would actually work and encourage yeah, yeah, yeah. and encourage that kind of self development. Yeah, I think even like you don't even know laptop. I think mobile technology yeah. has been yeah. hugely um, influential in changing the way that um, people have access to information. Yeah. And mm. Myanmar, since in Myanmar in 2012, when I arrived, a SIM card cost about. Two hundred or three hundred dollars. Mm, really. Um. In two thousand and fourteen, that changed to one dollar fifty. Wow. And so now amazing. the whole, like, not the whole country, but a huge percentage of people now have access to mobile phone technology, which they didn't have before. And you see now, you didn't, you, you now see people at market stalls, you know, sitting with their phones. Yeah, and yeah. Facebook has become enormously popular there. Yeah. So a lot of people get yeah. a lot of information through Facebook news feeds. Farmers as well and things, they look up yeah. things on Facebook news Something feeds. simple as like weather reports mm-hmm. on, online can be incredibly helpful yeah. for farmers. No, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, or having access to uh, crop like prices, market yeah. prices, yeah. and that sort of thing. Which day is a good day to sell? Which is a good day to buy? That sort of thing can make a, a big difference. So I think things like that do do empower people because they have access yeah. to to knowledge and information through. What was the most stark difference? I mean, did you move? Did you go from Myanmar to? Uh, from uh, Myanmar to Nicaragua, or was it? No, oh, no so, you went... so I was in Nicaragua. Then I was in Europe for a couple of years because I got quite sick. Actually, when I was in Nicaragua with a lot of bacteria and okay. things. I got a lot of Nasty. parasites in my intestines. Um, right, so I was in Europe those. for a little bit, yeah. And then, then after that, I went to Egypt, and then I went. I had, I mean, I had a couple of months in Europe, but then I went on to Myanmar after Egypt. Yeah. So tell us a story um, from your experiences in Nicaragua, and then let's hear another one of your poems. Okay, great. Um, what will I tell you about Nicaragua? Um, the thing, maybe I'll tell you the thing that most impressed me about Nicaragua, and that was really its people. It's a, a country you've probably heard about through the revolution. Yeah. Um, in 1979, they overthrew their dictator, mm-hmm. um, and then they, they turned into this, um, then, then the Sandinista party took power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daniel Ortega. Yeah. Daniel Ortega, yeah. yeah. Is he back in Yeah, now? he okay, came back. Yeah, right? so he was in power in the 1980s. Um, and then they had a contra war with the United States, which is really like a sort of satellite Soviet yeah. mm-hmm. um, Cold War type war, um, and was also a, a war between two factions in, within Nicaragua. Um, the country was sort of left quite poor and just exhausted, I think, by the end of it, because they mm-hmm. had a whole had about 10 years of revolution mm-hmm. and then 10 years of war, and then they didn't have very much mm-hmm. um, fights left in them, I think. So they had there was um, peace was declared, and then in 1990 they had the first democratic elections 
Um, I like the idea of peace being declared. Peace was declared. <laughs> People were just like, this is enough. We're yeah, not for this for shit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and then for the, from then until 2006, um, the Liberal Party was in control of Nicaragua, okay. so it had much more kind of pro-US, I suppose, pro-trade policies, that kind of thing. So is that liberal, is it more classically liberal, or is it neoliberal? Or is oh, it... I'd say kind of, oh, I don't know quite, where liberal meets capitalism that right, sort okay. of line okay, so yeah. more free market kind of approach to things yeah. or right, okay. they're kind of a bit more free market and a bit more I mean I suppose I, I, it's hard to equate them with something like the conservatives or something like that but yeah. I suppose if, if you think of the Sandinistas they're very left wing aren't right. they yeah. so the I suppose the rhetoric of the liberals is a little bit more right than that, but I wouldn't really say they're as far right as, okay. as in the UK. Right, right, thing. right. So maybe classically liberal, or mm-hmm. at least that's what they claim to be. Yeah, and yeah. then two thousand six, Ortega came back, yeah. <laughs> and he's been in power since then, and he's still. I think he's, he's vying for thing. another term now. Okay. As well, yeah. So he's been in power. I think. Is he popular? Oh, obviously, was he? He was democratically elected. I take it. Yeah. He's popular enough to be. It's populist, I would say, not. Popular. <laughs> okay. Who does he's, he appeal to then? He appeals to farmers and he right. appeals to rural communities and he appeals to the poor. The poor. Um, his rhetoric is very much for for the, that that group of people. Right. Um, and I mean, Nicaragua is very much a country divided in two. You're either mm. support. I mean, very much like the war. Like those factions still exist to a certain right. extent. A lot of people are very Sandinista and they tend and, and want and support Sandinista party. And then the other half are much more liberal and okay. liberal party it's sort of and in terms of human rights way. is it is it open I mean are people able to criticise the government openly, openly in Nicaragua fairly openly okay. but there have been I mean I worked in Amnesty for a while in London and then there were quite a lot of cases of intimidation of people who mm. were speaking out against certain things and there was there was there was claims that there was a gang of thugs that were, were employed by the, the Sandinista party to give people a hard time who um, who disagreed with right. government? It spoke out in certain ways, but I mean, I, I haven't I haven't been following that much recently, okay. so I'm not sure how it is. But I'd say it, I wouldn't say it's fully free and fair. But I'm not entirely sure where it is. To yeah. Be either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So you were impressed by the people in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think because they have this whole story of revolution, and then often people you'd meet, they tell you, you know their stories of being. You know, often they were sent. A lot of my colleagues. Are they uh, very upbeat people? Would you, would you think? Yeah, uh, they're funny. They okay. have a lot of jokes and a lot. They like to go out and dance, and they like to go and laugh, and they they like to tell stories, and, and they they tend to be quite big characters. Um, but they often have, I suppose, quite quite difficult lives of trying to survive. Um, and they often a lot of your colleagues I worked. For, with and um, there was obligatory recruitment into the mm. government army when the when the contra war began in the 1980s so a lot of people were when they were you know 17 or 18 mm. had gone to had to go into the hills and fight mm. so they all yeah. had these stories of of fighting or fighting in the sandinista armies or, or fight you know just sort of mm. having these like one one guy I worked with I always remember he ate his food so fast he'd eat his food like this and it was from that time when he had to eat his food really really quickly yeah. um, well, I can war. totally relate to that I yeah. was in the army and after I came out of the army like you know, my wife used to say to me, why did you eat I was like eat my arm round the plate in case somebody was going to take it away from me like, you know? yeah I was remember watching him eat, and I was just like how can you eat that quickly and he was like oh we were in the, you know we were standing you know in the mountains you had to eat your food then yeah, otherwise yeah. you might not get another chance yeah. Yeah. It. yeah, so I also I don't know. There was something really warm about the Nicaraguans. The country is quite. I say it's the it's it's the country with the least infrastructure where yeah. I've lived. They've not got very many sort of paved roads, mm. and it's not very built up. I mean, Myanmar is much more built up and, and really that's surprising. Yeah, than Nicaragua. I mean, Nicaragua is a very small country. Its main income is from coffee or tourism. Mm, okay. So the the sort of national. Was there any infrastructure there to start with it before the long war? And it got destroyed, or was it just never there to start? There with? was there was a colonial infrastructure that was destroyed in an earthquake in the nineteen oh, seventies, okay. I think, if right. I remember correctly. Um, so there was sort of a lot of buildings and things that that, that got destroyed in Managua, which is the capital. Um, but yeah, I guess um, yeah, there's I think there's just been the revolution, the war, and then just yeah. not much chance to get mm. back things on the things back on track and then okay. I mean a lot of their a lot of the national income is from coffee and then there's a lot of corruption as well and 
all that mm. just doesn't stem to building, you know, yeah, like it's not conducive, yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. But within that, like, I think if you just look at the country sort of on face value, you maybe don't see a very lot. But once you get once you get to know the stories of the people mm. and the, yeah. the the sort of history behind it, it becomes quite a fascinating place. So. I think that's sort of what what struck me most about Nicaragua. All these all these people. This guy, actually, if I can show you on my on my yeah, poster, absolutely. he um, he lived in a national park um, called um, Reserva de Tisay, which was quite near Esteli, where I live. Okay, I'll just take one and have a look. Yeah, up. have a wee look. Um, and so you can see he's showing us one of his pictures here. But he'd actually carved onto the rock face of this um, park this whole like this whole sculpture which included elephants, women, the Eiffel. I can't remember. Was it Eiffel? No, I think it was the Empire State Building. He sort right. of carved all this into the the mountains of this park. It was Vandal. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially Vandal, but I mean, he created this whole enormous rock face. He must have spent years wow. just carving into this rock. So there's always people with stories like yeah. this. Do you know yeah. that we're really um, interesting people? Yeah, so good that's, stuff. Yeah, that's Nicaragua. Have you got a Nicaragua related poem for us? Yeah, I think my favourite one is the one about my about my driver, <laughs> um, who was the project driver in our project, and he was called Don Silvio. Um, and he used to be a commandante in the Sandinista Revolutionary right, Army. Okay. Um, and Don Silvio liked to give me advice, especially about dating. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so Don Silvio's dating advice was that you have a woman in each town you go through. And if one woman doesn't treat you well, then you go to the next town and you... He sounds like he could be my guru. Actually. <laughs> you got his phone number. <laughs> yeah, I'm still, I'm still in he, contact with him other people. Was he working on you? Was that dating advice for you? Well, I think, yeah, I think that was for me as well. Like, so I think, you were meant to have a gentleman? Yeah, or? well, he, was, he wasn't very... Yeah, he liked the idea of having, you know, options. Options. Yeah. Was he trying to make, turn you into one of these options? Or do I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Yeah. But he didn't succeed anyway. I think he enjoyed telling me about how to have options more than anything. He okay. liked being this sort of fountain of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> no, he was he was great fun. I like I liked hanging out with Don Silvio a lot. Yeah, but anyway, he inspired this he inspired this poem. Um but also because he was this very strong Sandinista and he mm. loved the president okay. Ortega. Right. He inspired a poem that sort of links began linking all these different issues in Nicaragua together. Um will I do that for you now? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, here goes. Who wouldn't say yes to drive the president's Mercedes north from Managua? Yes. South from Managua? Yes. A smooth drive. If you didn't snore in the back seat, might seem yours this Mercedes. Maybe yes. Maybe no. You have seen this whole country, the rough back roads, the stretch of new carretera. In each new town, you have a different mujer. Exotic or plain, gorda or guapa. She offers you her local ways. Yes. In Hinotega, she is hollow, a black clay jug. In Tipitapa, she bites for a ride. Damilo. In Matagalpa, she is painted like a bow, her mouth shaped like a no. Cuando estaremos solos? When will we be alone? She wants to know. In San Juan, she sits like a hammered nail. You pour your own coffee, roll your own tortilla, and wait for her to ask in her hard voice. Este Presidente. All of them ask for the future, thinking yes and knowing no. And you say yes and no, meaning no. At the side of the road, the poor women cry, when will we live? And you think now, pressing too hard on your pedal. Maybe yes, maybe no. Mostly, it is waiting by your own door, the street going past three times, maybe four, the kitchen going hot and cold. Your wife, half-turned, half-folded, your child, half-wasted, half-promised. If you were asked, what way would you have it? You would laugh, like it is a game. 
Quien sabe verdad? Who knows, right? You would say. Another empty bottle, another real woman. I was in revolución. If God wants, I live. Yes. No. Then his call, the toss keys are ready in your hand. A low laugh. Yes, to everything. No, to everything else. And then, mi amor, I go. Complete with authentic Nicaraguan. Uh, there we go, Spanish Nicaraguan Spanish. <laughs> I can't, I can't help but get the Nicaraguan Spanish. That's wonderful. <laughs> so I think finally you'll have to take us to Egypt. To Egypt, yeah. Let's visit Egypt. So I lived in Egypt about a year after the famous revolution. Okay, the, the what did we call it again? The the, the spring. Yeah, the, spring, the, the Arab Spring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Arab Spring's obviously a bit, a bit wider than just Egypt. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah, after the the Tahrir uprising and um, at that time there was still a lot happening in Egypt. They hadn't had the elections yet to elect their president, so mm. um, it was still a lot of I suppose unrest at that time, but also. I found it to be a bit like, you know how you imagine Montmartre during the 19th century? Like sort of lots of artists and bohemians and people believing that everyone working together could change the world and feel this sense of people power was really, really strong in Egypt. Oh, and was that quite inspiring for Mm, you as well? Absolutely, I found it such an inspiring place to live. Yeah, it was really, it was a great place to be. Yeah, it was really interesting. There was always like... feeling you're part of history and something happening. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot happening. There was people painting murals and walls and there was like free art and free films and people, you know, wanting, I, met, I, I was doing a lot of journalism at that time, so I interviewed a man who wanted to plant the whole of Cairo with trees, wow. you know, Cairo Desert, <laughs> so he wanted to, you know, plant trees across Cairo. And, it's a um, good plan. I what know, were you writing plan. about when you were doing the journalism? A lot of human rights, right. I did a lot of human rights coverage of, of what was happening in, in Egypt at that time, yeah. so right. trying to look at sort of things like freedom of expression during, during the revolution, women's issues a lot right. of okay. Sort of women's representation and right. changes that were happening in Egypt, that sort of thing. Yeah, great. So, yeah, I know it was, it was really interesting um, time to be there, and it's I don't know. I think activists are really interesting people to be around as well because in some ways yeah. they're so. I don't know, they're so optimistic about right. things. At the same time, often you see them as being people who are fighting, but mm, actually really yeah. and often they've, they've got really beautiful ideals mm. as well that they're trying to, that they're fighting for. And it's a nice, I don't know, it's a really interesting conversation to be, to listen in on or somehow be a part of. Yeah. And um, what was the, uh, what was the progression of your, your, your stay there? Um, what, and what do you mean? Um, what was the situation on the ground when you came? What were you there to help with? And what did you see change over the course of your time? Okay, so um, when I, f- I was there, for, I wasn't in Egypt too long. I was in Egypt about a year, just under a year. Um, so the, um, I suppose when I first went there, there was it was about a year after the revolution, almost exactly to the day. So there were, there were quite a lot of protests and unrest around that time um, I don't think that really necessarily changed I think mm. Egypt um, I think the way that activism has evolved in Egypt that people see the, the value of going out in the streets so that mm. that sort of practice remains although now obviously it's been clamped down a lot because mm. of the new military government that's not so right. possible now but at, at that time and up until the military became back came back into power um, that, that was sort of became quite common in Egypt people would go out into the streets to protest about things um, when I, I left after um, Marcy was elected, so I was sort of witnessing the whole election unfold, and then I, and then when Marcy, uh, not long after Marcy was elected, I um, I left, um, and I left because I suppose I, what I was working on in Egypt was was a lot of sort of short term contracts and short term work, and it was just a country that, for personal reasons, I really wanted to go and right. live in. Not so much to do with the revolution, though it was so great to be part of the revolution. It was a place that I felt I'd sort of. I'd, I'd read a lot about, I'd been involved in a lot in various aspects of my life and I just wanted to go and live there for a while. So I worked in a lot of short-term contracts, but then I got offered the longer-term job in Myanmar, so that's what 
I decided to leave and go right. in okay. and, and feed, do something more long term. Yeah, right. but I no, still got because you were finished in Egypt because you liked Egypt, still, but because it was a big opportunity. It was a big opportunity to go and work in Asia, and I was also focusing on land rights, which I was so interested right. in. So I, I really wanted to go and do the the job in in Myanmar. But um, I still got a huge affection for the Middle East. I'd love mm. to go back to, to Egypt. What's the land rights situation in uh, Egypt? How does that? I mean, what? Mm, I mean, it's, it's, to be honest it's not something I've studied a great deal so okay. I won't go into a lot of detail on right. that but I did look at quite I did look into women's land rights yeah. there quite a bit and it was it's similar to a lot of what we talked about mm-hmm. before okay. yeah the sort of same sort of being prohibited through customary practices right. okay. to access or to have ownership, I suppose, of yeah. land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's similar. But yeah, I suppose Egypt for me is sort of marked by this huge revolutionary period yeah. and what was happening then. And that's that was what I suppose was most was most fascinating at that time. This this change and all the voice, different voices within that change and how they how they came about. Um, and a lot of people are saying that the revolution in Egypt's not over. Not over. Right. It's just going through a. Short, a short sort mm. of phase which involves unfortunately a lot of mm. military crackdown and mm. police presence and that it will go into another phase where people mm. will come back again okay. um, but I'm not sure entirely what form that will what take happened? it was the president was it Mubarak it was the president before yeah he yeah. was the president originally what, yeah. what, where I don't hear much of what happened I know he was in the jail and they put him on trial and they convicted yeah, him or something he was convicted what? and then Actually, I have to check that out. I'm yeah, sure what happened after that. Of, yeah, yeah there's, there's, kind of, there's not much. Uh, uh, he not was, much he was convicted when yeah. I was there, actually. And yeah. then I'm not sure. I didn't follow that story afterwards. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, too, too much other yeah. stuff was happening. Down you know, like hole. there were new presidents. Yeah. One for amnesty there. I think it happened to Mubarak. So perhaps you'll tell read us. Recite to us one last poem. Something from Egypt. And, uh, and, and give us the background to that. Yeah, no belly yeah. dancing, if you do. No me. belly dancing. This is actually a, a Sufi dancer here. Oh, right, cool. So, yeah, oh, no belly cool. dancing. He's a guy thrilling Sufi dancer on that poster. Yeah. Um, let me think. What will I give you from Egypt? So, in Egypt, we've got some gender equality poems, um, and we've got a poem about. The Egyptian language, the way they use one word in Arabic, that kind of fascinates me. Um, and then a poem about, I suppose, a little bit about the revolution, little snapshots from the revolution. Your choice, Mr. Samra. Uh, the one about the language really appeals. They all sound great. Yeah. And if you want to see the rest of, <laughs> if you want to see the yeah. rest of them, you'll know to find Katrina's show uh, at Opium Bar on Cowgate. And you better catch it before the 16th of August, otherwise you will miss it. So please uh, give us one last poem. So do you want the one about language? Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Okay, so the one about language is about this word, khalas. Okay. <laughs> Again, sorry? Khalas. It's a type. Okay. Yeah, it's like, starts with like, loch, you know, like, loch. Yeah, 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 yeah. It starts with that, which is quite hard, actually, to do when you're yeah, used okay. to being at the end of a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so loch, like, um, so khalas, um, and that word means in Arabic a bit. It means a bit like whatever. Do you know? Like it's done, it's finished. Okay. I don't care. Mm. It's over. Oh, right, right. Um, it's over very it. much a, like a sort of cathartic release. Yeah. Of, I like it much more than the English word because it's much more cathartic. It's much more of a, a release. Yeah, um, so it's better than meh as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just I like the way I liked a lot the way the Egyptians spoke. They they're very funny people. They made a lot of jokes and a lot of laugh. sort of I don't know a lot of sort of witty things. But this for me was particularly amusing. Just the way they used this word. Um, and so there, I wrote a poem based on great. it. Yeah, let's have you. Cool. <laughs> Moscow came over the Nile today like a new sort of winter, breathing truth down hot necks. I would have called you, he says. And he would have, but he didn't. And so, chalas. <laughs> Here God is remembered. He's there in the road, in the shivering river, and in the wild air of African winter. I would have come with you, she says. And she means it, but she didn't. And so chalas. So onwards, through the southern bends of the city, to the round cracked toes of women who are whole in their whole lives, where they bloom like flowers, crack like thumbs, 
and lick their tongues, sweet as dates, over their words. You would have come before, she whispers, and you would have, but you didn't, and so chalas. Hooray! <laughs> so not only the first woman in the Scottish Liberty podcast, but uh, the first poet as yeah. well. Oh really? Yeah, oh, they're breaking, they're breaking all the rules. Oh, there today. you go. <laughs> So, thank, um, is there anything you'd like to express before we wrap up for today? Um, no, no, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously you've only got a few days left to see it, but if you've got time, come and see, come on with the rest of the journey. We visit three continents in one hour. We gather a lot of air miles. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it's just it's been a nice way for me to share some of my experiences back home in Scotland um, of all these different places I've lived and worked. So, yeah, I'd love, love to see you. Well, see thanks you there. for sharing it with yeah. us. Well. Yeah. Thank you audience. for sharing your poems and your experiences and also the knowledge and um, um, it's been very educational as well as uh, really just enjoyable to sit down and have a chat and laugh with you so thanks very much for coming on the Scottish Liberty podcast and uh, hopefully look forward to getting up to your show thanks for having me guys you're welcome thank you thank you thank you it's a wrap it's a wrap